Today on the School of Podcasting, I am privileged enough to interview the author of one of my favorite books called Find Your Red Thread, Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible, because you might have a phenomenal podcast, but when you describe it to people, you're not explaining it in a way that they go, ooh, I want to listen to that. We're also going to talk about sometimes you just got to trust your gut. Hit it, ladies. The School of Podcasting with Dave Jackson. Podcasting since 2005. I am your award-winning Hall of Fame podcast coach, Dave Jackson, thanking you so much for tuning in. If you're new to the show, this is where we help you plan, launch, grow. And if you want to monetize your podcast today, I am so excited to talk to Tamson Webster because I'm here to tell you, we all need to communicate better. And sometimes we want people to do things that we think would be a good idea. Like, I don't know, click play or click subscribe, or I don't know, take out the trash or whatever. Right. And sometimes we just aren't saying the right words to get them to do what we want them to do. So that's what that book is all about. And I usually open up the show with a a quick tip of some sort because of my podcast story. If you have one of those, feel free to send it in schoolofpodcasting.com slash contact. Just answer the question because of my podcast, I did this and I wouldn't have been able to do it except, well, got a podcast and it opened up a door. And so what I'm going to do today is follow my gut and explain why I'm following my gut about following my gut. I got an email from Dave over at walk. It's it's walkingisfitness.com. And he said, I want to thank you for a recent podcast you did about how to respond to compliments. That was episode 830. You can find it at schoolofpodcasting.com slash 830. This is episode 833. He said, I do another podcast called Long Story Short. It's totally different from my walking podcast. Walking is fitness is about is kind of like low produced as you can get. He says, uh, where long story short is a highly produced scripted and with music beds and even the occasional sound effect. He says, anyhow, about a year and a half ago, I reached out to a young woman named Nikki who had just been diagnosed with stage four cancer. I asked her if she would be willing to document her cancer treatment for an entire year. She agreed And once a month, we talked by phone about how things were going. After that year wrapped up in December 2021, I got to work on turning those conversations into a 10-part series that released every week starting April 5th. Sadly, 13 hours after the final episode released on June 13th, Nikki passed away. That was not the ending anyone expected. Even though we lived 500 miles apart, I flew back to Maryland to attend Nikki's viewing and funeral. I was overwhelmed by how many people approached me and thanked me for the podcast. And every time someone did, I thought of your wise counsel about how to respond. I accepted their compliments. I did not deflect and responded with heartfelt gratitude. Dave says, look, I am not a hugger, but I let that moment unfold naturally. I was even thinking, what would Dave Jackson do? Uh, I I am a big hugger, so I I am somewhat shy, but hugs are cool. Uh, ironically, he said, I received your email after I left the viewing, 
Seeing your name on my inbox made me chuckle after having just spent a couple hours thinking about your advice. Anyhow, wanted you to know the impact of that episode and how timely it was for me the past couple days. Ultimately, it allowed me to honor the heartfelt appreciation people had for their podcast. But this is one of those things. It's such a sad story in a way. But on the other hand, Nikki's mom now can listen to her daughter. Now, granted, her daughter talking about cancer treatments is not the happiest thing to listen to. But trust me, when you don't have the person, you will take anything. I know my mom was always the person behind the camera. There are very few pictures of my mom. And I have, even though I was always recording stuff, I had cassettes. We have, again, very few actual recordings of my mother's voice. So that's the one point I wanted to make, that it's it's great to capture these things in time. I always say, if they're around, when you first start doing interviews, make sure your first interview is not a real interview because you need to practice. And you can practice on your parents if they're around. You can practice on your kids, your aunts, your uncle, your cat in some cases is a great interview. So always make sure your first interview is not a real interview. And again, interview your parents if they're around. You will thank me later. But the other thing, the other point I want to make about this is sometimes you have to follow your gut. And it's kind of dawned on me. It, it took me, I guess, 17 years to figure this out. I am my own target audience. And one of the things that helps me decide, in some cases, whether or not I'm going to cover a topic or not, is does it excite me? And so in episode 830, I told the story about how I had someone who was just showering me with compliments and how incredibly uncomfortable it made me felt. But I had to get used to that because it was important for this person for me to understand how much I had, this sounds like such a weird humble brag, how much I had uh, affected their their life, which is great to hear, but it's even me, I can't spit the words out without going, so so why did I cover that subject? Because I was pretty sure there was somebody else like Dave out there who needed to hear this, because if I needed to hear this, and I tend to attract people who are somewhat like me, then somebody else is probably going to need to hear this too. So when I did the research on this, like how do you handle a compliment? What should I do? What should I say? I went ahead and said, well, if it's important to me, that's probably important to somebody else. So sometimes you just got to follow your gut. And there may be times when you follow your gut right off a cliff and your audience is like, what? I don't want to talk about politics in this show. And then there are other times when you follow your gut and you get a nice email like the one I got from Dave. But in the end, it's your show. It's your call. And for me, that's one of the things. If I'm not excited about a topic or a guest, then I'm not going to really talk about it because I think that's going to come through. And speaking of being excited, my interview with the one and only Tamson Webster, author of the book, Find Your Red Thread, Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible, is coming up right after this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. She is the author of the book, Find Your Red Thread, Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible. But really, today she is here because she made me think. And if you're new to the show, I love to think. And if I wasn't using a Kindle, I would have seriously worn out my highlighter. Um, (laughs) 
She collects degrees like other people collect refrigerator magnets, and she's helped huge companies. We This could be a huge list. Johnson & Johnson, Harvard Medical School, Intel. What might pique this audience's ears is you've also served for many years as the executive producer and idea strategist for one of the oldest locally organized TED Talks, which is TEDx Cambridge. Yep. Some call her the idea whisperer. And if you read her book or join your mastermind or have her coach you or your business, you're going to end up making content your audience can't unhear. And you've heard me complain about how so many books about stories are like, stories are good. You should use stories, but they don't tell you how to tell a story. And this one tells you how to tell a story, but also how to work the story into a strategy. And that's the part I think that really makes this book unique. One thing I loved about this book as I got to the end is I went, oh, Oh, I, ah, I see what you did there, which is you used your strategy throughout the book because I found myself, especially the first couple of chapters going, oh, I could do this. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I could do this. And by the end of the book, I'm like, oh, that's part of the strategy is getting your target audience to lead themselves to the uh, conclusion in a way. So you got uh, it. if you, yeah. So if you want other people to, to act on your idea, they need to see the world the way you do, and that means finding out not only what change we want them to do, but uh, what they need to hear in order to make it. You can find all of our content at TamsonWebster.com. There's only one. I would say the one and only, but in this case, there's really one and only. So, Tamson Webster, thanks for coming on the show. I am delighted, and I would like to be introduced that way all the time. I just, okay, just I'll just follow every day. you around. Dave, yeah. you just, just saying, here's Tamson. Here she is. <laughs> Well, I, I really, I really enjoyed the book and I was actually went back and listened to the podcast you did, the free noter that you did yes. with your husband, Tom. Yeah, I miss the free noter. That's when this question came up. Is this something you could use on something like the free noter? Because it sounds like this is just a fun conversation between husband and wife and everything like that. And I was like, does the red thread fit into a show like that? I mean, we did think of the red thread of like, what was the arc of the show? Like, what was the show about and why, you know, why did it exist the way that it did? And Tom and I did a webinar once called The Pitchable Podcast, which basically took the red thread format and helped podcasters figure out essentially how do you talk about your podcast in a way that A, makes it clear and irresistible, something they can't unhear. But B, also in the process of doing that, how can you find and differentiate your podcast from what other folks are doing? So, you know, I doing what I do and Tom doing what he does, especially now, uh, there was no way we were going to do a podcast without having figured out some of that stuff <laughs> in advance. So while we didn't necessarily have a like a red thread for each episode, we definitely had a red thread for what is this podcast about? Who is it for? What question does it answer at a high level? And What's our perspective on that? What are some of the things that we that we deeply believe about how to get your message across when you're speaking for free and what kind of perspective we want to take on that? The other question, before we jump into the book, you help so many people with their TED Talks. And I'm dying to know any kind of insights on how many edits, like, or how many drafts does a TEDx go through before <laughs> it hits the stage? I don't think I've ever been asked that. That is a, that is a, that's fun to think about. Well, I can tell you that at TEDx Cambridge, which is a very intense coaching process because that's 
what it is. <laughs> That's what it is. And it, and it maps fairly closely to what I do if I'm working one-on-one with someone to build a talk. But, but the executive director did the math and he said that it's 10 calls over 14 weeks before they get into like really like kind of the, we have writing coaches as well that really edit it from there. So I would say the kind of the idea kind of coming up with the red mm-hmm. thread and then, you know, there's, there's probably, you know, four rounds of edits on that, just getting it, getting just the core message of the talk set takes a while. And then I would say that's probably five or six rounds of edits on, on the drafts that come off of that. And then there's some additional edits from there. So I would have to say, I mean, depending on how you're counting, we're probably talking about 15 or 20 different versions, like edit, you know, and the whole idea of spending so much time up front on the idea and for me to be the person that really helps get that first draft really out there is that it gets to the writing coaches already as tight as it can be. It reduces the number of of substantive edits that have to happen after that. It's usually just, you know, things that would help the performance or something along those lines. I loved watching your Ted talks and a couple of them. And I know you were a Navy kid, which I'm assuming you went all over the place. Did that make you more outgoing and and comfortable on stage or the opposite? Oh, opposite. (laughs) I don't, I think it's also just baked into us. Though my father is an introvert, uh, extrovert. My mother is an introvert. My sister's an introvert. I'm an introvert. I like to say I'm situationally extroverted. Like I can turn it on, Mm. but I actually had a panic disorder for 17 years. And a lot of that was sparked by stage fright from fairly early on. So yeah, it, it has been a, it's been a journey to to get past that. The reason I asked is I was watching one video on red lights and green lights, and mm-hmm. there was one spot where music was supposed to come in, and it didn't, and that might shake some people. And you were just like, "Man, there was supposed to be some music here." Moving on, and I was like, <laughs> "Wow, that's there's somebody who's really comfortable on stage and didn't wet their pants when you had an opportunity to." And so I just wondered where that came from. So I would actually say that my ability to roll with things like that came from the 13 years I was a Weight Watchers leader because, or I should say moonlighted as a Weight Watchers leader, which Mm. I did in addition to my full-time job for 13 years. And I I did the math on that one time and and it nets out to about 3000 presentations as over the course of my time as a, as a Weight Watchers leader. And man, you, you just deal with everything. I mean, I, and a, you know, very little of it actually was technical stuff mm-hmm. in a Weight Watcher meeting. Cause you know, particularly in the early days, it was like flip charts, dry erase boards. <laughs> um, you know, and it wasn't only until like the, le- like the later years where they started going into presentations. But I think a lot of those skills that I learned there and just doing it over and over and over again yeah. and having to, handle a lot of Q and a and having handling disruptions and all of that. You, you just learn that a, the audience is almost always on your side. B small children will not die if the music doesn't come on. Right. And C, you know, the audience is looking to you for how to respond. It's kind of like, if you've ever had an animal, like your animal checks in with you about like, should I be worried about this? And like, if you're not worried, they're not worried generally. So that's kind of how I feel about it. And also enough experience with that of knowing that if you just kind of acknowledge it and roll through, the audience is kind of like, oh, oh, okay. 
so we're doing this now that it works even better for you in practice. But yeah, it was, it was white watchers and 3000 presentations. People are like, how can you, you know, what happens if I'm nervous? I'm like, tell the audience you're nervous. That's like, honestly, people are like, what, what? And I'm like, and this, I learned in overcoming my panic disorder. One of the worst things you can do in the middle of a panic attack is try to convince yourself to stop panicking. Like to tell yourself <laughs> not to panic is like a guaranteed way to panic more. And it's kind of the same thing when you're nervous on stage or on a mic or whatever. It's just that the more that you start to freak out about the fact that you are and that you try to hide it, like the more that gives yourself something else to think about and something else to process. So the last vestige of my stage fright was still at TEDx Cambridge presentations because those are big audiences. I was also the MC, And so those audiences were like 2,500, 3,000 people. And that's a lot, you know? And so those, that was the last place where I would still go on stage and my hands would be numb. And then I eventually worked with a, a wonderful woman named Linda Ugolo and managed to even dispel that. But, you know, what, one of the things that I would do, I'd just be like, oh, Ethel, you are a lot of people. <laughs> so when I walk on stage and it's just, you know, it's what's in my head, but also by articulating exactly what's in my head, it kind of establishes, you know, it calms the audiences down because they're yeah. like, oh, she's not going to be, you know, yeah. an automaton up there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it's giving yourself permission to be whatever it is that you think you shouldn't be in the moment. It actually takes so much of the pressure, pressure. off yep. of that. So when you're just like, hey, you know what? It makes sense that I'm nervous because that's like 3,000 people who wouldn't be nervous. Like I'm, I'm, right. you know, we're humans. We're pack animals. We're designed to be like with the eyes, not having them all look at us. Like that's a, <laughs> not a natural place to be. So it's you're like, you kind of just say, all right, buddy, you're acting like you should. And we're OK. We're just going to walk yeah. through it. That's it. My hands turn even more wider than they normally are and get sweaty <laughs> five minutes before I go on stage. And it's perfectly yeah. normal. It happens yep. every time. So yep. we mentioned earlier, we just kind of threw out the phrase red thread. And of course, I know what it means. You know what it means. But, uh, you know, we probably should explain why you named the book, you know, Find Your Red Thread. Yeah. Well, I, full disclosure was was borrowing whole the idiom that is that is more common in Europe than it is here, where hmm. uh, particularly in Northern Europe, they use the idiom, the red thread to talk about the logical progression of ideas of something, the main idea of something, the main argument of something. Um, you see it oftentimes in like academics talking to each other about saying, hey, we need to find the red thread of this research or the red thread of this paper. And I had some clients, you know, I was at a, at a, a meeting with Ericsson in, in Sweden and they used this phrase. And the first time I heard it, I was like, this must be just an Ericsson thing. And so I didn't really think much of it. I was just like, oh, that's a cool phrase. Like, go Ericsson. What a neat phrase to like use internally about like, what are you trying to say here? What's your point? But then a couple of years later, I was working with a different client and they just happened to have somebody who was Swedish on the team and she used the phrase again. And so I was like, okay. Did you work for Ericsson? No. Okay. What is this? What is this? And she was like, oh, you don't have that here. And I was like, no, but I love it. Because that you know, intersected with the work I was doing at TEDx Cambridge, where constantly trying to like, what's the big idea? What's the idea worth spreading? And I was just A, taken with the phrase and B, taken with the idea that like, it, that is the thing that so many people, podcasters, content creators, speakers, authors, founders, so many people struggle with getting the red thread, that big idea, that argument, that case for something across crisply and concisely and well. So I was like, okay, well, this is what I can 
call what I help people build. I mean, essentially it's your core message. But then when I went and looked at the various legends behind why is the red thread called the red thread, uh, I found the one that they think is the, the source of it, which was the legend of Theseus and the Minotaur. And the red thread is how Theseus traced his path through the Minotaur's labyrinth so he could find his way back out again. And I, I was like, oh, what a great image. What a great story. But it was also very much analogous to the process that I was taking the TEDx Cambridge speakers through, my clients through, of kind of walking them through the process of how they came up with an idea in the first place so that they could reconstruct that for somebody else. So since the red thread both described the process and the outcome, and it's a great, it's a great alliterative phrase, we just went with that. I went with that. I don't, <laughs> Imperial we, it's just me. <laughs> it's just, I went well, with that. <laughs> and for me, it turned on a big giant light bulb because I run a Northeast Ohio podcasters meetup and I'll get a brand new person and I will blurt out, oh, you just need to export at 128 kilobits per second constant bit rate. And you just watch them drool and things like that. And I was like, this is where I need my red thread so I can go back and remember what it was like when I hadn't picked a microphone yet. And now how do yeah. I describe this to somebody? And that's where it really, really hit me. And you you have these kind of five, are they steps? Are they, what is it? It's They're five. elements. The whole premise of the of the book is that, and of the red thread, is that this logical progression of ideas is rooted in story and in story structure, because that's how we make a decision. Is not that we say once upon a time, there was a tortoise and a hare. Like literally our brain constructs a story to explain why things happen the way they do. I knew this from doing research, you know, both as a Weight Watchers leader and in my you know day job and brand and message strategy. I knew that stories and story structure were critical, but I was really fascinated by the fact that this is how we made sense of information. And so I wanted to figure out, well, okay, if if stories are how we make sense of information and our brain builds these stories, what are the elements of the stories our brain built? Like that was my big question. Like, what are the key moments in every story that our brain tells us that is how something makes sense? What has to be there? And the good news turned out to be that the, you know, that my hypothesis seems to be true that the stories that we tell other people have those same elements. So we can look at those elements that we, you know, we can look at once upon a time stories and say, okay, well, what elements are in all of those and say, all right, if we can map our idea into those elements, then we're going to have a complete red thread. You can think of them as story events or elements. I just, I think of them as the, as the pieces of the red thread, that they are individual strands that tie together to create that rope. Well, and I know the first one is the goal where we have to figure out like what our target audience wants to do. And yeah. to me, I, I, the fun word, I pick one niche, 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 <laughs> maybe we could make up a new version of it. <laughs> As my husband, Tom, says, niche, or as the French say, niche. <laughs> <laughs> What's your strategy for niching down an audience when we have to figure out what their goal is? We have to figure out first, who am I talking to? Yeah. So the shortcut is to say, can you go straight to that question? Of course, the vast majority of people can't. And not because they're not able to. It's just because you have to really know who you're for before you can understand what question that audience is asking, which is how I like to frame that goal. Another way to think of the goal is, is your audience's problem they know about, the problem they are actively trying to solve. So a lot of times when people say, 
who is your message for, who is your podcast for, whatever, they'll just say everyone. Mm. And what I've learned over time is that generally when we say that, we mean people who see the world the same way we do. And my favorite example of that is when Seth Rogen first launched his podcast and somebody asked him that question and they were like, who's your podcast for Seth Rogen? And he was like, everyone. I was like, oh, that is not, that is not true. (laughs) Um, Because I mean, if you know Seth Rogen, I mean, he, I mean, there's a, there's a population that's going to adore that podcast. And there's going to be a population that is absolutely horrified by that podcast. (laughs) Um, And so Really, you know, the way that I work with clients to figure this out is is to sometimes to back up a little bit and say, all right, first figure out a category. And people is not a category, by the way. Are you talking about business people? Are you talking about family members? Are you talking about salespeople, marketing people? You know, experts is how I would generally talk about my own audience. That's already one niche down. And then to start to think about things like, what is it that they want and that they would agree they want? So for instance, one of my clients, they have they make invisible fencing for ranches. So they work with ranchers and their ranchers want to be able to maintain the legacy of the land. Like that's a very important thing to ranchers. Mm-hmm. So kind of figuring out what that want is, or I just worked with a, a faith-based university last week. And one of the things that we decided that, you know, they're, category, of course, it just isn't prospective students. It was in this case, you know, graduating Christian seniors, like that's a, that's narrower, right. That have already engaged in some way. And we decided that they wanted to live a a meaningful and purposeful life, a life of meaning and purpose, that that's not the problem they're trying to solve when they're going to college. Right. But, (laughs) but by understanding the motivation behind, well, why do they want to go to college and why would they want to go to a faith-based college? They're going to say, well, we want, we want the people who want that. Like that's a good intersection. So finding what they want is important. Next, finding what they value. And this is important because it's what do they value that you also value? So this is one of those places where Seth Rogen would lose certain people, right? Because it's like, (laughs) there's a set of values, you know, let's call them stoner values that like sit with Seth, right? And then there's going to be some other values that don't. And I think that's a really important thing for anybody, podcasters in particular, to say, well, you know, there really is something about what you value that's going to come through, right? So you, Dave, you very much value the fact that a podcaster doesn't just send out like that, you know, it's listened to. So being able to kind of value that full loop of communication, for instance, would be something that's important for the folks that are interested in the school of podcasting, right? So people are just like, I just want to speak. I don't care if I'm heard. Probably not as useful to you. And then the final thing is, what do they struggle with? And I have found just over and over again that by being able to articulate that specific struggle, like back to the university I was working with last week, what do I need to be successful? Or what do I need to succeed? Like at my career, in my faith, in my life, that's the question we settled on because it wasn't just like, where should I go to college? It was like, well, why are you asking that question? And what mm-hmm. was the question we knew they would be asking? So generally, you know, if I'm talking about my own clients, for instance, generally they're trying to find, they're asking some version of, you know, how can I get people to act on my ideas? Like I have an idea, I need them to do something as a result of it. How do I do that? And I think that just by identifying that question, because that question contains so much, it contains that value, it contains that deeper want, it contains a, a mindset that identifying that question can be a really great 
way of identifying who you're really for. Well, and that's it. You talk about the book, like we establish the goal of what they want, and then there's this problem. And I love the one, again, kind of a strategy of the five whys. Yeah. Like if a customer, like if somebody says, growing a podcast is hard, why? Well, because there are a lot of podcasts out there. Why? Because it's, and then you just keep asking why, and eventually you come back to like, oh, this is really what people want. And that was one that I was like, oh, this led me down a whole other different thing that actually led to me changing things at the school of podcasting. I'm like, that's really the problem. It's not the microphone. It's this thing over here. So I love that. And and you call that discovering the truth where that's like the third step you've, okay, we've identified what their problem is. Yeah. The real problem from your perspective, which is important. So the goal is what they know, you know, the problem they think they have, the problem that I identify is the problem, you know, they have, but that they would agree. So that's a, that's a whole subtle thing we can get into if we want. Um, and then that third thing is that is right, is that truth, which is something that they believe, which makes that problem impossible to, to ignore. And it's usually some kind of, you know, what psychologists call a silent assumption about how the world works. So for instance, in my newsletter last week, I was talking about why it can be so important to articulate that truth. Because back to your first question about you know, how do you identify your niche? You can kind of take that goal and that truth, and that can be a really good way to summarize who you're, who you're for as well. So if I'm going to use the one from the book, for instance, so I could say I'm for people who are trying to drive actions from their ideas and believe, right, that it's true that how we see the world drives what we do in it. Because if you believe that, that your perspectives affect your behaviors, that how you think affects how you feel and affects how you act, well, then I know generally that if I articulate it well, then you're going to understand why this particular approach might work for you. So I think that that combination is really important. It really helps people understand and identify whether or not they agree not just with what you do, but with the way that you do it. And I find that that is a that is a critically underserved aspect of messaging and marketing is explaining kind of the why behind our how as much as we explain the why behind our what. Right? We're we're really good, thanks to Simon Sinek and others, about like you know what's your why? Why do you run the school of podcasting? But I think it's people understanding why you run it, the way that you run it, the why behind that how that's going to make someone decide between your offering and somebody else's, right? Because there's other offerings out there about how to get started in podcasting um, or how to get better in podcasting. But it's in the how almost always, really, truly, that that differentiation happens. And why you do it that way is where people really can connect with why you do it that way. So I think the same thing is true when you're thinking about even just your podcast. Like, okay, there's plenty of people who talk about X leadership, let's say. Right. And maybe you've chosen a specific format and there's a specific approach that you're thinking about. Like, well, why would you do it that way? Tell me that piece of it. Because that I think is A, going to make it easier for you to articulate for other people why they should listen. But B, if you can't do that yet, then that tells you you've got work to do before your podcast will be differentiated, before it will be something that people will tell other people about. That's it. And when I was reading the book, I kept seeing this because you're talking about how the brain works. And I think when somebody goes looking for a podcast, I want to find a podcast on leadership. Mm. The goal is to understand the person so that you can write the description 
in a way that resonates with them so that they go, oh, that's for me. And that's when you can then start to share kind of your vision of, of leadership. And that's when you get into trying to get people to, to change. And can you describe the difference between action and change? So there's kind of the life definition difference. And then there's the, the, the way they differ, like as, as applied to the red thread, because those are the last two pieces. So we've got goal, problem, truth, and then change, which in the context of the red thread, I define as what is the high level shift in thinking or behavior, either that you're asking someone to take, or in the case, if you're talking about your own podcast that you represent, why is your approach to, you know, maximizing the profitability of a ranch better than somebody else's? Why is this, you know, this this invisible fence, the best way to do that? Why is telling a story that someone will tell themselves the best way to, you know, that's the change for, for the red thread. Why is that the way, best way to make your idea irresistible? So that change is the high level shift. And then the actions are the specific things that someone needs to do or the, the details that make that concept concrete. So in the context of what you do, Dave, it's going to be like, so here's the change you represent, the approach that you represent. And if I recall from our work together, it's really kind of getting feedback from the people who are like the audience that you would want so that you're actually getting A, feedback, but B, tailored feedback ahead of you know when you are putting your podcast out there. People want to know, okay, that's I agree with you in principle. That's what kind of getting to the change of the part of the red thread is, is getting someone to agree with you in principle. And then the actions piece are like how to make that principle practical for them. So what does that look like? What do you offer? How do you do it? How do I sign up? Um, you, what markets do you serve? Um, where does it apply? Like what's the, what's the process? All of those pieces. Globally, I see the difference between change and action and they are related in the same way is that a, that a change is an intrinsically motivated action that you're willing to do over and over and over again, right? An action is like a one-time thing and a change is t- typically sustained action or what a series of actions will effect. You have, which was funny, uh, and I forget his name, the guy that wrote the proverb book. Oh yeah, Ron Plouffe. Here's the fun thing of word of mouth. I heard about you from your husband, Tom Webster. He said you two were doing the Pitchable podcast. And I was like, well, I like Tom. I want to see, like, Tom seems like a smart guy. I bet he married somebody smart. And he did. (laughs) And then, then... That brought me to you, which he then, oh, by the way, you have a book. So I, via word of mouth, I bought the book. And plus what I'd seen, because I bought your book, I've now consumed a huge amount of your YouTube. And I subscribed to your newsletter, proving once again that if you deliver value to somebody, they will go download all of your other stuff. When you you mentioned, (laughs) and then when you mentioned, well, when you mentioned the book about Proverbs, I went over and started to read that. And I was like, wow, this is a really like easy to consume message. And when I got to the end of the book, I hear that, oh yeah, he's one of your clients. I'm like, of course he is. Cause it was so well read and put together. But one of the little nuggets that I loved was you can't change what they, your audience or your potential customers or whatever, you can't change what they do until you change how they see. And yep. it was that kind of stuff. When I say you made me think that I was like, yeah, that's true. Oh, yes. huh. now how am I going to do that? And that's where, Again, the thing I loved about the book was you can't listen to this book in the car because you, my, my thing is you have to read this book or listen to it. But when she says do this, you need to stop and do this because there's some really cool steps in there. 
And if you do that, by the end of the book, you're going to be like, holy cow, look at what I just did. And because when we talk about my problem was, right, here's my mental thing was, I'm a teacher, I, I can explain things, but I, I'm really awful at marketing, right? That's my thing. I'm not a marketer, I'm a teacher. And that was my problem. And through this book of you explaining, oh, just do this, here's what this is, and this is why it makes sense. And you go, oh, yeah, I could do that. And at the end, I was like, wow, I actually have a marketing strategy. The guy that stinks at marketing now has a marketing strategy. So uh, I really do. I just love the book. It's, again, it's goal, problem, truth, change, and action. And we're just we're just sniffing those today. You really <laughs> want to check out the book. But before I let you go, I need to ask if I can talk to Karen O'Sullivan or Sullivan. Is it Sullivan? <laughs> it's O'Sullivan. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, sure. If which of course is your, you've lived in Boston for a while and she is your yep. accented alter ego. What would be the song that would get Karen super excited on the Yacht Rock channel? On the Yacht Rock channel? Ah, well, she loves Yacht Rock. I mean, it's awesome. <laughs> who um, doesn't? Yeah, who would, man, that's a, okay. You know what? She would actually argue with you that yeah. Dirty Water should be on the Yacht Rock channel, <laughs> even though it has nothing to do with it just because it should be, because it's such a great song and it's about water, and therefore it should be on the Yacht Rock station. It's not. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Oh. Go, Tom Brady. Okay. <laughs> That's... <laughs> I should have gone for like the most Boston name to say no my Gassiapa. Um who is uh yeah <laughs> my my generation of Red Sox. But uh it's all good. And I, I let me be clear, I adore Bostonians. I love the full range of accents. Oh, I'm yeah. not sure Karen was in her you know in her prime form today. She's I love accents, so uh she loves a yes. good lobster roll. <laughs> That's it. And again, sign up for the newsletter. Check out our YouTube channel. Everything you can find is at Tamsin Webster. And Tamsin is just T-A-M-S-E-N. It's the way you're supposed to spell it. Uh, yeah, and, and that's how works, I so. think about it. Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah, none of those I-Ns out there. Someone asked yeah. me today, a, a client who was in Amsterdam, he's like, how many Tamsins are there in the world? And I'm like, I have met probably about 15 or 20 at this point, and I'm aware yeah. of about 30 or 40 more. But thank you very much for your time. I really do deeply appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, that was so much fun. She is a blast. And I'll have links to everything out in the show notes at schoolofpodcasting.com slash 833. Did you hear how much preparation goes into a TED Talk? Now, I wanted that question there, not so that you feel you have to do 20 rough drafts of your episode every week, but just to point out that it does take some dedication, some focus to create great content. So if you're just like, oh, it's just me and my buddy and we're just going to crack some brews and do some bros and hit record and look, that's perfectly fine until you come to me and go, how do I make money at this? And I'm just going to say, well, um, hmm, you know, that kind of thing. And again, you don't have to make money with your podcast. I love that. I love the fact that, again, he was a person who was seriously frightened to go on stage, as are probably you. I know the number one fear among humans is speaking in public. How did she get good at it? By doing it over and over and over and over. And so realize that when you start a podcast, you're going to be stepping out of your comfort zone. I'm doing that right now. I'm learning the software Descript 
And the minute I jumped into it, I was like, Ooh, I don't like this. I can't find where to do the, I don't under, yeah, that whole thing. And when I, I looked at myself and like, remember how this feels, right? Let's grab that red thread and remember what this feels like, because I'm going to be talking to somebody about how to use the script, because from what I've found, they have a lot of material, not the material that I need, which is, hey, let's go step by step through this thing. And their training is good that I find. It's just I keep watching the same video telling me the same thing. It's like, here's another video that explains how to erase the text. And I'm like, yeah, I've seen that in like seven different videos. And so you remember, so there's the problem, right? That's the problem. I can't find a step-by-step walkthrough of Descript. That's the problem that I'm going to solve. And to do that, I have to go there, get out of my comfort zone and go, oh, can I do this in Hindenburg? I know Hindenburg, but I'm embracing the just uncomfortableness. And I remember, I need to remember what I'm thinking. So I've done this ever since I was a teacher is any question I have when I'm learning any kind of software, write down the questions, because if I have the question, you're going to have the question in the same way that, you know, I did the episode on, "Mm, I'm not really comfortable accepting compliments. Yeah. Dave has the same thing. So I'm writing down the steps as I learn any software that's in the school of podcasting. That's been the way I learn software and that's the way I teach software. And I've been doing it for about 30 years now, something like that. It's insane. So everything we talked about, you can find out again at schoolofpodcasting.com slash 833. Now, if you're a person that's like, hey, dude, I saw you bought the new Rodecaster Pro 2. Why didn't you do an episode on the Rodecaster Pro 2? Because I'm still playing with it. And I found some things that I really like. And I found one thing that I really dislike. There's this weird fade feature that if you're not quite sure what you're doing, it will fade out your volume and you're like, oh, cool. And then it doesn't let you know that it's not letting your volume off the mat, basically. Like everything's still faded and you're troubleshooting and you're re- and like, oh, you have to do is press that button again and it'll turn off the fade. Yeah, that was about 45 minutes of my Saturday night where I'm like, why can't I get any sound out of this thing? So I'm doing all that stuff so that when I do my video on this and I'll do an episode on this. And I'll, I'll tell you about it. I kind of always, the thing I hate about, he said, trying to spit this out about gear. So I don't want to do the episode now, but I do want to say this about gear in general. If you're thinking, oh man, if I just had this, my audience would go bonkers. Like I've just grown my audience and I'm just here to tell you, unless your audio sounds like this. <laughs> wow. That's fun. Uh, it's you're you're getting any kind of new gear is not probably going to grow your audience. What it usually does in some cases is it boosts your confidence behind the mic, and that might actually help grow your audience. But if you're thinking, man, if it, if I just sounded like this or this, then I would be growing my audience. And I'm here to say, no, that's usually not the case. And while I'm rambling, one other thing I want to mention: it, it just needs repeated because I'm seeing this more and more and more. I'm a big fan of recording a bunch of episodes. Remember, test them and see how long it takes and then pick a schedule because you want to have a consistent schedule. And I'm seeing more people get hung up on the consistent schedule than on the when you deliver an episode, it needs to be consistently good. I would much rather have a late show that was good than an on time show that was meh. 
you know, that's just uh, something I'm trying to. Here we go. I, I would write one that was mad because now that I have the Roadcaster 2, I can do this. Yeah, so just consistency is good. I'm not saying don't worry about consistency. I'm just saying if I have to worry about one of the two consistencies, consistency of schedule or consistency of content, I'm going consistency of content because people don't go, hey, man, you got to check out this podcast. Check this. Here, take one of my earbuds. And they're going to go, why? And they're like, they publish every Wednesday. Yeah, that's usually not the way that happens. They're not telling their friends, oh, they're there every Thursday at 2.42, 36 seconds. No, it's not. No. It's the content. Just, I'm just saying. So thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. And everything again, schoolofpodcasting.com slash 833. If you're ready to start your podcast, schoolofpodcasting.com slash start. Use the coupon code listener. That's L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R when you sign up. Next week, I will be talking about the Roadcaster and anything else that you want me to talk about. Until then... Don't forget your sunscreen. Have a good week. Take care. God bless. Class is dismissed. And speaking of being excited, I was super excited to interview Tamson with Webbifa. All right, look, it's only 8 o'clock. My mouth should not have checked out already. It really comes from a place of love and adoration, and a lot of it started you know, when I, when I was back working at Weight Watchers, and I worked with this woman <laughs> named Bar- Barbara, um, Barbara Goodwin, and um, it was just, she was magical, and I loved her, and I just remember one time she was talking about, we were talking about snacks, and I literally could not understand what she was talking about. <laughs> uh, I have another story about that. And she was like, popcorn. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Popcorn? And she's like, popcorn, you know, popcorn. They're like, eat popcorn. You put it in the microwave. And I'm like, popcorn? Oh, okay. But there was this also this one time. So I lived in the North End in Boston, which is the, the traditionally has been the little Italy of Boston. There is still a dry goods store called Pocari's, which is amazing. And they sell spices for like 50 cents for like two ounces. So it's just like this incredible place. I remember one time I went in there, I was looking for, King Arthur flower. But I don't, but I remember they're like, oh, yeah, we got King Gata. And I'm like, King, King Gata. Like, and I literally heard it as King Gata flower. And it was like, and then the person I was with was like, I think that's King Arthur flower. King, King Gata. I was like, oh, King Arthur. King Arthur. Oh, oh, okay. So yeah. Anyway, thanks for asking about Karen. <laughs>